in um, Acts chapter 4 is opposition. We've dealt with the day of Pentecost. We've been through chapter 3 with this amazing healing of this lame man, a man lame from birth. And this healing was such an amazing thing, it really got the attention of just about everybody. And certainly it got the attention of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees. Have you heard of the Sadducees? What did the Sadducees believe? Well, they believed in just the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe in any doctrine that was not listed in the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe in a Messiah to come, and they did not believe in the resurrection. This was the aristocracy, the rich, important people who were thick with the Romans. They wanted to maintain status quo. And one of the things I want you to notice from the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it challenges every authority that is in the land. It was a revolutionary message that they preached. And smart, intelligent, rich people like the Sadducees were certainly threatened with this preaching and this healing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we, as we are introduced to this opposition, it's something we're going to see all the way through the book of Acts. Jesus said, if they persecute me, do not be surprised if they persecute you. But he also said, when you are brought before kings and rulers, God's Spirit will give you the words to speak. So we're going to see an example, a fulfillment of that statement in the Gospel of Luke, of Jesus. In fact, we're seeing many fulfillments of what Jesus said here. Let's go to the text, Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. It's interesting in verse 4 that Luke includes that statement there. It's something he didn't have to put in. The Word of God grows even if the apostles are in jail. Nothing can stop it. And I need to remind us of Seventh-day Adventists that if we do not proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the rocks and the stones will cry out, God will find a way of preaching the message of Jesus. The next day, the rulers, the elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. He had been deposed, but he still was very influential within Judaism, deposed by the Romans. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. All the top knobs were there. 
This was serious stuff. Peter and John are now thinking, we're being tried by the men or some of the men who executed Jesus. Is that what, what's going to happen to us? Are they going to take us out of here? Have this mock trial and crucify us? But should that be their concern? Should consequences be our concern when we preach about Jesus? Or do we believe that God is in control and if it's God's will that you and I lay our lives down for Him, then so be it. Somehow, some way, it's in His plan and God's kingdom will expand no matter what. So they had Peter and John brought before them. They began to question them by what power or what name do you do this? I don't know what you think of the question, but to me it sounds a bit silly. They knew what name was being used. And I'm sure for them to mouth the name of Jesus Christ was really hard. Because number one, Jesus was dead. Was he not? Or was he living? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So we have this trial, we have this questioning, now we have Peter's defense. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's important that Luke includes that. This is not Peter in his own strength when he denied his Lord. This is a man, this, this shows you the change in an individual when they are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And when Peter was anointed with the Holy Spirit, for example, on the day of Pentecost, he wasn't really meeting opposition. But now he's in the lion's den. He has the opposition and a large group, over 70, would be there in the Sanhedrin. Men who were clinical in their understanding of applying the law. Men who would take texts like from the book of Deuteronomy and that says if there's a prophet that arises among you, somebody that can do signs and wonders like healing the sick, for example, and if they don't preach a certain message, these people are to be executed. They would know all those kinds of things. They would always be looking for the technicality if they couldn't find it in the Word of God. So notice that Peter, when he, when he defends the faith here, when he becomes the Christian apologist, is a man that is doing it under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, not in his own strength. So he said, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He spells it out. He doesn't just say Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now let me ask you an obvious question. If your life was on the line, would you talk that way to such an impressive group of people? 
Would you have the courage, the confidence, the boldness? These are all characteristics of the Holy Spirit when it comes to teaching and preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he uses Scripture, because after all, these are men who are supposed to know Scripture, and and they use Scripture to judge people. The stone you build is rejected, this is from Psalms 118, verse 22, which has become the capstone. The stone you build is rejected has become, what? The capstone or the cornerstone. This is a text that the Lord Jesus Christ had used and actually applied to himself. Now Peter is drawing on this scripture and applying it again before this crowd to the Lord Jesus Christ. Henry Einstein tells of a popular story among the Jews of Jesus' day that had to do with the building of Solomon's great temple. The story says that when the temple of Solomon was being built, every one of the stones sent up from the rock quarry below was pretty much identical in size and shape. One day a stone came up the hill that was quite a bit different from all of the rest. The workman looked at it and said, this is a mistake. We can't use this stone. And they sent it tumbling down to the bottom of the valley of Kidron, below the temple area. Seven years went on as the men struggled to implement the grand plans of this fabulous temple. Near the end of the seventh year, the builders were finally ready for the chief cornerstone. And so they sent down an order for it. And after a while, a message came back up the hill. You guys already have it. We sent it to you a long time ago. But the workers couldn't find the cornerstone anywhere. And then an old workman came forward and said, I remember now, there was a stone different from the rest, and we thought that there was no place for it, and so we sent it rolling back down into the valley. Then the builders went down to the valley of Kidron and finally found the stone covered with moss and dirt, the very stone that was rejected by the builders. And now they began the difficult job of hoisting it back to the top of the cliff, then back to the platform and into place. And they rejoiced as they realized that, that it was a perfect fit. The stone the builders rejected had become the head corner stone. So when Peter preached to the Jews about Christ and told them that in rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, that their people had rejected the chief corner stone, the audience knew exactly what he was talking about, that he was talking about the Lord and Savior, the weighted Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ who had been rejected. But God had raised him from the valley of death and placed him as the cornerstone of the new temple that God is building, which is his church. Many are rejecting Jesus in their ignorance, in their foolishness. And God in his mercy gives them another opportunity. And if this story is true, which I've just shared with you, if it was common knowledge in those days, 
and they had the scripture and the Lord Jesus Christ that fulfilled all the criteria, then they had no right to continue to reject him. But you know, accepting the Lord Jesus Christ when you have spoken against him is not easy. It's going to cut across human pride. Praise God, many of these religious leaders, if you can call them that, did repent and did come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe not on this occasion. But God is not through with them yet. Peter carries on, salvation is found in no one else. Not in Buddha, not in Muhammad. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Don't you like that text? So clear, so plain. Well, if you'd had a man filled with the Holy Spirit preaching a message to you like that, what do you do? As far as I'm concerned, you repent. You change your mind. You realize you've been on the wrong track. You're like Paul on the, on the Damascus Road and should say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, here's the reaction of the Sanhedrin. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with who? Jesus. If you spend time with Jesus, you have to proclaim him to the multitude. But since they could see that the man who had been healed standing there was with them, so he's not leaving, he's hanging on to Peter and John. He's become a believer, hasn't he? And it's interesting how, how Luke kind of mingles the healing and the salvation into one. That's not an accident. When we look at this amazing healing, we can focus on the physical, but we will not get the full impact if we do that. Salvation means health. The Greek word for salvation means health. So God wants us to have health in every dimension of our life. The way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. Does He want us to be healthy physically? All you health reformers, you've suddenly got glued lips. God wants us to be healthy in every facet, every area of our lives, in our marriage in every area, in our families. So we shouldn't have a very narrow concept of salvation. He wants a healthy family, a healthy church family. And the way that we treat one another is the bottom line of whether we've been with Jesus or not. We can say whatever we want, 
Peter can proclaim Jesus this and Jesus that. But if, if Peter, as in Galatians, cold shoulders the brethren, then there's a problem. So even great men of God, like Peter, can make big, big mistakes. And if we're truly understanding and living the life of Jesus, then we will love God, and we will love our fellow men. And it starts here in the church. Has there any gossip been going on this week? Any of the saints been hung, drawn, and quartered? Any cannibalized? I got a strongly worded piece of paper last week that says, Pastor, preach on how we should treat one another. Well, I'm in a series on Acts. But if you continue in Galatians, you'll find it. Paul says, if you continue to bite one another, cannibalize one another. Did you hear that story of uh, that young couple that the leader of the, of the party was a headhunter? Any of you hear that? So the boyfriend or the husband, I can't remember which, went off with this man. He had a big tattoo. It's been on the internet. He had a big tattoo on his shoulder, and they believe he was a headhunter. And he killed this, I believe it was an American, out there in the South Seas, I think it was, and they found his ashes and his teeth in a fire. Paul talks in Galatians about treating one another that way. If you focus, if you lay the wrong focus, as they did in Galatians, even though he had tried to lay the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and these false teachers had come in, shifted the focus, that's all it takes. Start focusing on yourself. Start focusing on what you need to do. Yeah, it's all right, this Jesus stuff, and it's all right, this gospel message that Paul says, but hey, what about all of these texts on the law and circumcision and so on and so forth? Don't be surprised, Paul says, if you turn in on yourself, you will also turn and attack the saints. There's a strong relationship between justification by faith, which he has spent time talking about, how God accepts us. If God accepts you and I at our worst, while we are ungodly, while we are his enemies, while we are unrighteous, if God accepts us because we trust in Jesus and we're brought into the family of God, how dare we? How dare we treat one another any different? And when we see empty pews, you can blame the preacher. You might be right, you might be wrong. But look within. See if love is pervading our congregation. Where would you find a group of strangers coming together who really, really love one another, as we found in the, in the Pentecost, and as we will also find before we're through today, 
in, in not just in Acts chapter 2, but in Acts chapter 4. All this talk of the Holy Spirit has practical ramifications on the way we treat one another. Otherwise, it's just some interesting theory. Well, they could see the man who had been healed was there. They couldn't deny that. Nothing they could say, verse 14 says. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. They conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Well, they should put a crown on their head with stars for a start. They should honor them. But that's asking a bit much, isn't it? They're not rich. They're not learned. They're not the cool guys in the eyes of the world. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that what they've done was an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. We'd like to, but we can't. It's out there. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, verse 17, among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they called him in again. Here's the court's decision. Here's the sentence. And they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. This time, no lashes, no whipping, no physical punishment. Because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Pretty impressive. And it's very tempting for me at this point to talk about this whole idea of miracles and healing and signs and wonders. And if you know anything about the vineyard movement and uh, John Wimber, Wimber, I think he's called, uh, you know what an important topic it is. Not, maybe not so much in Seventh-day Adventist circles. We read about the miracles and the healings and the signs and the wonders, but we don't really believe that God's going to do it amongst us, do we? Do we? We do? I never hear you talking about it. So that's why I say that. And I've been here how long? Four and a half years. So I have a basis of, say, of making statements like that. I do believe in these things. I do not believe that God has to manifest himself with tongues of fire, with foreign languages, he can manifest himself as he sees fit. But none of us can exclude the very real possibility of God working miracles of healing, for example. Then, of course, if we believe in that, it's kind of harder to believe in it than not believe in it. Because if you believe in it, you're going to say, well, why doesn't it happen amongst us? Kind of an interesting topic, don't you think? Maybe we should preach a sermon on that sometime. And I know that we've had saints that have died not too long ago who asked that very question. 
Why doesn't God physically heal me? Not always easy to answer those questions, is it? But he is sovereign. Because now we're going to look at a prayer. When these men are let go, Peter and John, how do they respond? What do they do? And the next few verses tell us. And then we will see something of their understanding of God and the way that he works. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. When God's people face a crisis, prayer should be the most natural response on the, on the part of God's family. Now let's notice very quickly their prayer. It emphasizes three things about God. God as creator, the God who reveals himself, and the God of history. First, God as creator, sovereign Lord. What does that mean? Who's boss? God is boss. He created everything. So he's number one. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. The creator God is sovereign, is Lord. But not only is he the creator God, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, his revelation. Anything that you and I know about God that's true and that's accurate has been revealed to us. We don't know these things because we're born in an Adventist family. We don't know these things because our dad's a pastor. We know these things because God has revealed them to us through the Word of God via the Holy Spirit. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. His scripture again, the Old Testament, Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Who is the anointed one? The Lord Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth that they've been speaking about. Now the God of history, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Whoa, what's going on here? Well, God is sovereign. Does that mean because God is sovereign that he is forcing these men, such as Pilate or Herod, to treat Jesus the way that they, they did? Or do they have responsibility for that? Well, Jesus has already addressed that question. When they were arresting him, he says, not you, but the other one who has betrayed you as the greatest sin. We make choices. God can use our choices to bring about His plans, His purposes. It's our choice. It's the exercise of our will. So we can't appear before God on Judgment Day and start making excuses. It's not going to cut it. 
We've made those choices, and the choices here were to get rid, execute the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 28 again. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, three requests. So before you make your requests in prayer, don't rush into the presence of God with your requests. Laying the wrong emphasis. Focus on God and His person first. Then the requests follow. Three requests. Lord, consider their threats. Now, if you and I were in this situation, would we say, Lord, take the pressure off. Get me out of the fiery furnace. I don't care what it takes. I've been in situations like that. Maybe not as gravely serious as this one, but things that were serious to me, and I've said, Lord, remove me or remove whatever, who or whatever the situation was. Because you really want to know that God is with you. But I like the way that they make their requests. Consider their threats. And then secondly, enable your servants to speak your word with a little bit of courage. Is that what your translation says? Is this the living translation that I'm using here, the paraphrase? What does it say? Let's say it as a congregation. What does it say? Great boldness. Even the Apostle Paul, at the end of the book of Ephesians, says, pray for me. Pray that I may speak the Word of God with boldness. Because it's very easy to be mealy-mouthed, to water it down, especially if the saints are paying your salary. Which is not quite like that in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are blessings, there is wisdom in some of the ways that we do stewardship in the Seventh-day Adventist church. But what would you do if you're a preacher and they're taking the collection plate right there and then as you're preaching? Maybe it's a small offering if you preach with great boldness. Maybe speaking with great boldness will bring persecution. But again, are we to be concerned with things like that? Or are we to do what is right and let the chips fall where they may? Speak your word with great boldness and stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Note the emphasis on signs and wonders and miracles and healings. Jesus saturated his ministry with these kinds of things. But there was all, it, was always, it was always a sign. That's the way that John speaks, the, the Greek word he uses in his, in his letter. Signs to point to a greater reality. So if somebody's eyes are healed and they receive their sight, that is to point forward to a greater reality of their soul receiving their sight and then finding salvation. But they do go hand in hand. So we cannot minimize that, even if we may not fully understand why God does not always reveal Himself in this way. 
I don't have uh, the statement with me. I can use it some other time because we will come across this signs and wonders again. But Ellen White, when she talks of the, of the final Pentecost, if I can use that phrase, the final outpouring on, on God's family before Jesus Christ comes back, do you believe in that? Do you believe the best days are still ahead? Even if tremendous persecution comes to God's family, the best days are still ahead where thousands and thousands, probably millions of people, doors will be open where they've been closed before. People will be seeking for the Word of God. The Word of God will be open. Spouses that, that wouldn't come and join the church because of their husbands will break free and become part of God's family. And miracles will be happening through God's children. Just as we saw in Acts chapter 2, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, as though it's going to be the norm. So at the end of the age before Jesus Christ comes back, God will do spectacular things. Will Satan do spectacular things? Yes, he will. But what do you want to focus on? Do you want to focus on the epitome of evil who's doing his signs and wonders, which is often what we do in our evangelism, or do we want to focus on God, the epitome of goodness, doing his signs and wonders through you, the believer, who hopefully will receive this tremendous anointing of the Holy Spirit before Jesus Christ comes back. Anyway, here's their request. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. My friends, this is not the Bay Area. Though there, I have read there's a natural fault that runs through the Mount of Olives. You ever heard that before? Apparently it's true. So that can fit in with some scripture. But the place where they were filled is shaken because of the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God boldly. Now I need to stop there. But I want you to go home and do some homework. Because we're going to find something at the end of this chapter that's very similar to the end of chapter 2. There's a lot of similarities between these two chapters. All the believers are one in heart and mind. Talk about unity. John 17, the high priestly prayer. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Much grace was upon them all. No needy persons among them, for, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Next week, I am not going to deal with Ananias and Sapphira. I've preached a sermon on that before. So... Skip Ananias and Sapphira in your reading or read it and just realize I'm not dealing with it next week. And then we will continue with the rest of chapter 5 or even into chapter 6. But can you see the fellowship that the early church had? We're not even close to that. But I believe they were meeting on a regular basis. Regular proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. No church can be healthy without that. There was a sharing. There was a love. I like the phrase where it says, great grace was upon 
them all. Wouldn't you like to belong to a church family like that? There's only one way it happens, by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why does it not happen? Because we do not seek it. We do not wrestle with God as Jacob did. But those who will partake of the early rain will receive the latter rain. Those who take seriously these passages in their own lives first and in the life of the, uh, collectively of the church family will be blessed by God. God will pour out His Spirit and He Himself, sovereign God, will finish the work on planet Earth. You're supposed to be smiling now. Hey, there's no persecution here, or not any great persecution yet. As we continue, there will be. There'll be whippings and all sorts of stuff going on. But at this point, we rest in Jesus. We thank Him for His promises. We thank Him for the kind of God that He is. And we expect Him to do great things in our own lives and in the life of His church. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You this morning that You are sovereign God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And Lord, we live in a society that is brainwashing us with evolutionary ideas. We want to put the focus on You, Lord, not the slime pit. You, the sovereign God, the Holy One of Israel, the One who can move in our lives and give us a living representation of Yourself on a daily basis, a baptism of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ and the soul of man. This is what we want, Lord. This is what we need as a church. We're making little impact. We want You to work through us in a powerful way. We thank You that You will. In Jesus' name we pray.